0: You got a Bible? You can look with me briefly at Deuteronomy chapter one. This is the third and last in our series. Don't let the past rob your future. It's about how to get unstuck. So Deuteronomy one, verse two and verse six and seven says, normally it takes only eleven days to travel from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea by way of Mount Seir. Verse six. When we were at Mount Sinai, the Lord our God said to us, you have stayed at this mountain long enough. It's time to break camp and move on. God told him, guys, this is normally only an 11-day journey. You've turned this into a 40-year nightmare. Do you know that a lot of you, the Lord would say, how long are you going to go around this mountain?" You're digging ruts, you've worn out 82 pairs of tennis shoes, and you still haven't gone anywhere. It's like getting on the carousel, riding all day. You went in circles, you, you, you were busy, but you didn't go anywhere, and when you got off, you're right where you got on, and you got nothing for it. Now that's about going in circles, and God's telling Israel, look, it doesn't take that long to recover. You need to break camp, advance, move on get unstuck. And on the road of life, a lot of people get stuck in places that they're supposed to move through. Wasn't it David who said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He didn't buy land and build condominiums. He moved on through it. And so all of us go through bad seasons, and the difference is some people just get stuck there. These are not places of destination. This is not your promised land. Some people get stuck in a place of shortage and lack. Everybody in life runs through seasons of shortage when things weren't as abundant, but rather than move on through it, they just buy a sectional sofa, a flat-screen TV, a cappuccino machine, and they live out the rest of their life with a new doctrine of poverty instead of moving through it. As a church, as an individual, we've all gone through seasons of lack. We went through that 08 recession. It was horrible. And it was devastating to some people who lost homes, and lost jobs, and lost businesses. Charitable giving plunged 40%. But I don't think anybody with the mind of Christ thought that's where we're going to stay, and that certainly wasn't going to be the will of God. It was just temporary. We were passing through. It's kind of like visiting your relatives. You're just passing through. We are not going to stay. Okay. Others get stuck at a place of heartache and grief. They lose a loved one or a friend, or something happens to them that's traumatic. Their heart gets broken. But rather than applying God's Word as the balm of healing, they decide to get stuck and stay there. You remember Jesus asked a pretty, pretty serious question to a guy who had been laying at the pool of Bethesda for uh, eighteen years or something. He says, do you want to be made well? Do you know some people don't? They don't. And so, don't waste your time if people don't want to do better or don't want change. So again, this was not their place of destination. It's not where God wants them to go. But they got stuck at a place of heartache and grief, and no matter how obedient you are as a Christian or how dedicated you are, you're going to have setback. You're going to have some heartbreak. You're going to have some great disappointments. You're going to have some days of discouragement, but for crying out loud, that's not going to be my destination. I'm going to move on through it. So they get stuck right there in that setback, even though it's not God's intended destination. And when we're stuck like that, we can't move forward until we're ready to take on more. You've got to have the capacity for more before you can move ahead. You can't put a size 12 dress in a si- on a size 4 body. No, wait. I didn't get that right. You, you can't put a size 12 body in a size 4 dress. That's, that's how we get it right. Right. In other words, you've got to have some—increase the capacity, right? Well that's true in life. In Genesis 17 verse 1, God said that—quit qu- laughing—God said to Abram, I am El Shaddai. In other words, Abraham, I'm the God of more than enough. You know, sometimes it's more important to know what a person does, their role, than it is to know their name. If you've got a broken, leaking pipe in your house and water's pouring out on your floor, You can barely hear the introduction of the guy who knocks on your door and says, excuse me, I'm Russ from Ace Plumbing. You don't care who he is. You just know he's the plumber. Get your ugly self in here and stop the water. I'm more interested in his role than his name. And when you're sick or injured, you don't care if it's Dr. George or Dr. Hensley. What you care about is his role. So God was impressing upon Abraham who he was. So he says, Abraham, I want you to know me as the God of more than enough, the God of abundance. God says, I've got plenty of what you need. There's more sufficiency than you and I can contain. And the real issue is, how much can I contain? How big is your container? David said, I was enlarged in distress. That'll get you out of a comfort zone. That'll stretch you to your trust in God, build your faith. When you go through a, a troubling time, David says, I was enlarged, not in success, but in distress. You got to grow or die. And when you grow, your capacity gets bigger, you get stronger, you get better. I mean, when I was in high school back in the fifties, our coach—we were just an A-level football team, A school, high school. He would scrimmage us against uh, four A schools, which would beat the snot out of us. But the whole point was, I want to put you up against the better than best. And if you'll build your skill levels and get tougher and get smarter, then when I bring you back to play in your own level, you can win. You you can certainly do better, and and we did. There he made us grow, it hurt, but he made us grow. so I want to look at this word routine that by enlarging our capacity in life we can get a greater measure of whatever we need so On your notepad, if you want to just write routine vertically, I'm going to use it as an acronym to show you how we escape the boring rut of routine Christianity. If we're going to rise to new levels, if a church is going to grow, then the people have to grow. If the church is going to see increase, it is the people that have to increase, because the church isn't the building. The building holds the church. The church is the people. It's you and I. We've got to increase. So, let's look at some symptoms of routine Christianity, and let's see if you possibly could be in one of these ruts. R stands for the rut of repeated, boring, and unrewarding activity. Why would a football team keep running the same play if it doesn't work? I'm thinking of a team right now, but I won't say it. There's not a coach alive that's worth his pay that's going to keep doing something if it keeps losing. You have to change. If what you're doing isn't working, try something new. If the, you got a dead horse, dismount. You may not have a horse to get on, but the one you're on is dead. At least get off. That's progress. Maybe you one will come by, you can jump on and ride. But don't keep doing the same thing if it's not producing what you want. A sign at the entrance of a country road says, pick your rut carefully, you're going to be in it for a long time. And boy, that's true. We, we get into habits, don't we? And whether good or bad, they enslave us. Good habits are a good thing, but bad habits are tragic. Life is a daring adventure, or it's nothing at all. It's not supposed to be a rut of just routine, boring activity. So, you have to ask yourself occasionally— When is the last time I did anything for the first time? Just when is it? I read, I've told you several years ago about a guy who lived in the same house 50 years. He never traveled more than 25 miles from home. One day he sold his home, and he moved next door. When people said, why, he said, I guess it's just the gypsy spirit in me. I I don't think so. See? And that's called a mental state of habit. And inside that mental state of habit is a city called Boredomville. Boring people live in Boredomville. There are boring churches. There are boring jobs. There are boring marriages. Everything is boring in Boredomville. And people live like it's the only place to live on earth. But of good news for all of us is today, you don't have to live in Boredomville. There are a lot of other places you can hang out if you're willing to do other things you've never done before. A lot of people are still given the same offering they gave five years ago. You know, God's been good, God's blessed you, but you're still given that same old amount you've always given. You haven't grown at all. You haven't increased at all, so God can't pour more into you. Some people sit—not this crowd, I'm sure—sit in the same chairs every service. I mean, they go in and possess the territory. They think they own it. If a visitor happens to get in that chair, they've lost the victory. The rest of the day is ruined. They can't hear a thing I'm saying because they are stuck in their little boredomville. People in boredomville cling to their King James Bible as though Satan authorized every other translation that makes it easier to read and understand. So if you happen to be 400 years or older, you can keep your King James Bible. But nobody talks that way today, and yet these are people stuck in some routine. So if your life is boring, if your marriage is boring, if your job is boring, if your church is boring, go back home, look in the mirror, slap yourself, and say, hello, Mr. or Mrs. Boring, because it's you. You know, that's what makes boring marriages, boring jobs, boring lives, boring people. Get up in the morning, look at yourself in the mirror when you get over the shock, scream. Get a life today. Drink a cappuccino instead of a latte when you leave. Go home a different route. Eat at a different restaurant. Don't stay in the rut. People who stay in a rut get bogged down and limit their life. Don't confuse activity with accomplishment. Just because your wheels are spinning doesn't mean you're going anywhere. I mean, if the scenery hasn't changed at all in the last few years, you're not making any progress. You ought to be seeing something you haven't seen before because you're doing something you've never done before. So that's the R. The O in routine stands for an obstinate state of mind which causes a person to resist change by being stubborn and inflexible. You ever know anybody where it has to be their idea before it's a good idea? I mean, it ain't smoke unless it's coming out of their chimney. That's what they think. That's what an obstinate state of mind is. Teenagers have this a lot. It's a person stubbornly attached to where they are. And it doesn't matter how many good suggestions you offer, or how many great ideas, or how much encouragement you give, they are stuck right there in that obstinate state of mind. You know, they are always no people said. No matter what you say, no matter what you suggest, it's not a good idea. Theirs isn't working out, but they just refuse to change. Obstinate state of mind. How about you? You know, Are you teachable? You know, all they do when you have a seminar is teach you some things you didn't know. The U in routine is for unbelief. That unbelief that hinders a person from entering into greater things for their life. Jesus said the Holy One of Israel was limited because of unbelief in the Psalms. In other words, no demon hindered them. No, Satan couldn't stop them, but their own unbelief hindered them. In some places, it says, and Jesus could do not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That's a very toxic thing, unbelief. What you choose to believe affects what you receive. So, you have to choose your belief carefully. Give a lot of thought to your beliefs. They will shape your life. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So, don't tell me your belief does not affect the outcome of your life, because it does. And I think some people here probably need to reclaim your mind from negative thoughts and wrong and negative beliefs. Those beliefs will cause you to gravitate towards them. They'll pull your life in their direction. Be careful what you believe about your marriage, about your church, about yourself, about your health, about your finances, because it may not even be true, but it can be true to you because you believe it. As a man thinks in his heart, or as he believes, so shall he be. So could you be—this is why God says to renew your mind. That's why God says, wash your mind with the water of His Word. Scripture ought to wash away anything you've heard that is contrary to what Scripture says. And there's a whole lot of religious thinking that isn't in the Bible. Curiosity killed the cat. Nowhere in the Bible does it say it killed—show me the cat. Where's the body? Somebody told you that. Curiosity is the key to being creative and progress. If it wasn't for curiosity, I wouldn't be holding a legal pad— uh, excuse me, a legal pad. How about an iPad? I need to be more curious. That's how we got all the great inventions and helps that we use in life. Curiosity is a great thing. But somebody said, curiosity killed the cat. Well, it was a stupid cat. You don't have curiosity, you're going to be dead as Julius Caesar. I mean, come on. It's, that curiosity is a God-given quality in your life. What a good thing to have. So, get that doubt and unbelief out of your mind, because when you believe it, you'll start speaking it, you'll start thinking about it, you'll meditate on it, you will expect it. And guess what? You'll get it. Job says, that which I feared has come upon me. Well, I knew this would happen to me. Well, I knew I wouldn't win. Well, I knew. See, your belief is shaping your outcome. On the other hand, if you're on a team or you're in a board, you have to say, well, the situation right now is bad, but we'll get through it. The situation is bad right now, but God's Word has promised. We are obeying what God said. He promised me a good outcome. We're going to make it through this. Now, that's, that's just agreeing with God. My thinking is going to affect how I behave, what kind of vibes I give off, and it's going to bring to me exactly, well, nobody will ever date me. Nobody will ever take me out. Well, guess what? You keep talking like that, nobody, antichrist isn't going to take you out. Stop saying that. Quit talking yourself into defeat. Nasty talking. I know we came in, we came in Saturday, and my goodness, we had Trash cans, we had leaks because we've had a heat wave and no rain for a month and a half, and all of a sudden a steel roof will separate in the heat, break those seams, lose caulking, and as a result you have to get roofers to go back up. So, our guys, Bobby Capello especially, went around. We had buckets up here. We had them out, and th- we had to close the carousel. We had some real serious leaks that could cause a tile to fa- fall down. So, what did we do? We did the best we could with what we had. We couldn't roof it on Saturday night in that rainstorm. But we could do what we could do and move on. Monday, we'll get the people in here. That's you don't just sit around and worry, oh, 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 we got leaks. Oh, we got a problem. And some people just carry that right through a whole week, a month, a day, and a year. I'm thinking, okay, we got some leaks. Do what we can to plug it, close that area, and Monday we'll get the contractors out and we'll deal with it. That's how you move on. You just, well, honey, I wrecked the car. Okay, you're okay, good. We'll file, we'll put it together, we'll get it back on the road, we'll move on. What are you going to do? You're just going to grieve over this thing forever? I wouldn't be talking about anything specific, would I, tonight about—my <laughs> <laughs> uh, my lovely wife uh, kissed the front end of her car goodbye. That's uh, anyway, but as <laughs> long as she was okay, I, don't, I, I, can, I can get another car. I can't get another one of her. I've been married to her 41 years tomorrow. Yay, come on. So, number four, the T in routine stands for traditions involving methodology that no longer best serve their original purpose, but continue to own our allegiance. Now, a tradition is not good or bad necessarily. Some traditions are good. Well, I have a tradition of getting up early and praying. Well, it's a good thing. Not bad. But churches come down with traditions on how they do things that are not evil, they're not prohibited, but they're not commanded by Scripture. So when a tradition or a method in a church fails to meet its objective, you are free to get rid of it. You don't have to hold on to it because it ain't working anymore. The days in which it was brought into view was probably practical. It probably was a help. But with technology, with change in the culture and attitudes of the people, that technology or that method is no longer effective in reaching people. So don't, don't force a church to operate on some 50-year-old mindset or 20-year-old mindset you came into the church with, because that may have been effective in that day, but It's not very effective today. I could just imagine some of the former leaders I worked for who are in heaven and now know better if they could see churches today. It ought to bring a smile on their face, but I'm I'm afraid some of those guys were so stuck they couldn't change a baby, let alone their mind. They just couldn't do it. So traditions held a lot of people in dry places. It's caused misplaced loyalty resulting in an obligation or an allegiance to wrong people and wrong things. It's kind of like Israel. God wants to move us towards our promised land, but we still got this tradition thing hanging on us and it's difficult to God to take us to our destination. Don't confuse a method with the message. The message is never going to change. The truth of God's word is changeless. It's eternal. However, the culture has changed, technology has changed, methods have changed, and music keeps changing with our culture. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, You know, you can sing a 400-year-old hymn, but I doubt any of the teenagers or young adults want to sing it. As long as the music honors God, who cares whether it's upbeat, or slower tempo, or with intelligent lighting, or or, well, I think that's just Hollywood, that's honey, because you ain't never been to Hollywood. You never been to Vegas. You haven't seen a great presentation in your life. And if you did, and I go, and I do, it's like saying, wow, that captivated my attention, captivated my mind, my ears, and my eyes. I want to use that to communicate truth of the gospel to people. That's called smart, folks. Who wants to hang on a tradition that's killing your church? That your kids don't want to go and don't want to listen. So you got to remember, only the Word of God is eternal. Everything else is temporal. There's nothing sacred about music or methods or style or technology. We sometimes use a secular song to illustrate a message or a theme. I know one time I did the song by The Beatles. We played it for a minute and a half called Help, and we were doing something on relationships, and two are better than one. And remember that old hit by The Beatles called Help? I need somebody, not just anybody. When I was young ago, much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now, these days and nights, I'm not so self-assured. I changed my mind. I need you like I never did before. Help me if you can. I'm feeling down, and I do appreciate you being around. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please help me? Now that would just bend a religious person out of shape, and yet the words are perfect. You're saying what God's saying. You need somebody. Not just anybody, but somebody. <laughs> okay. I'm having fun anyway. But they think it can't be good because it was written by somebody who maybe isn't a Christian. But you can take something out of the culture and sanctify it for our Lord's use. You know, the enemy can steal from Christians, and Christians don't think they can steal from the enemy. Why not? Why not? Anything the, anything the, 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 the culture has, God gave people the talent. They just don't honor Him with it. We can turn around and honor God with it. Simple as that. But that's because some people are stuck. Maybe over songbooks, overhead projectors, video screen, intelligent lighting, you name it. Don't get hung up on traditions, sentimental attachments. When your sentimental attachments are governing your choices and governing what you're doing, you'll become like the children of Israel on the way to the Promised Land, and all the time talking about leeks, onions, and garlics back in Egypt. Egypt was not their destination. The promised land was. But all they wanted to talk about was the good old days, what they did a long time ago. They were sentimentally attached to the past, so they couldn't embrace their future. And they wasted 40 years in the desert, and by the way, not one of them over 20 years of age except Joshua and Caleb got into the promised land. God let every one of them die in the wilderness. And there are a lot of Christians going to heaven who are dying in the wilderness, and will never see the promised land of destiny God has for their life, because they're so sentimentally attached to what used to be. What got you where you are won't take you where you need to go. Every new season in life requires new learning, new, new, new skills adaptation, uh, being flexible. What got you wherever you are in your marriage won't get you to the next decade in your marriage. You have to keep adapting and changing. How many of you know all of us as humans go through seasons in life? I think I tweeted the other day, if you're still thinking at 60 like you thought at 30, you just wasted 30 years. Boy, I see things a lot different now than I did at 30. You know, what I thought was important then isn't diddly squat. Now, and you can sum up decisions and choices. You know, we thought it was all about fun and party and being buff or being hot or doing this or doing that, and then pretty soon you realize, I need a job. I need benefits. I need some sort of security, and all of a sudden, hot ain't cutting it anymore. Let me just remind you girls, find somebody with a job before hot, okay, or buff. Be sure he got a job and a future. God gave, God gave Adam a job before He gave him a wife. And now you're not mama, and you don't need to support him. And if he can't support you, you better find another horse. You cut another one from the herd, because this one, don't, don't saddle up on this old boy, because he, he can't take you anywhere. Welcome to Marriage Counseling 101. <laughs> So, if you happen to go to a new church, you get transferred, you move, you, some of you military, do me a favor, do your a new pastor a favor. Don't compare them to us. Let it be a new day with a new leader, a new style, a new song, a new vision. Don't impose an old one on the new. And if you were married before, and now you're thinking about getting married again, maybe you're engaged or fixed, don't, don't impose the behavior of that past marriage on this new marriage, because uh, they're not the same. The ladies are not the same. And what one likes, the other one may not care for. So, you're going to have to adapt and grow again, which is why I'd never marry again. I, ain't, I died once. I'm not going to die twice. <laughs> Forty-one years is enough dying. I ain't going to die anymore. Well, I don't want to have to learn what you don't like, what you do like. What's wrong with me? I don't want to go through that again. And <laughs> so, at my age, it's okay. It's all right. So, don't impose a, an old style on a new person or a new church. Make certain you don't allow sentimental attachments to take over your life and keep you from moving on to what God has for you. Here's the I, number five, I in routine, Ignorance resulting from failure to gain knowledge and understanding. We've all heard people say, what I don't know can't hurt me. At least you've heard that, right? It did not come out of the Bible. It is not true. Hosea 4, 6, God says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What you don't know can destroy you. And so, that's why God says in Proverbs 1, wisdom is the chief or the principal thing. With all your getting, get wisdom. Get understanding. Now, this is God talking to us. He says, you don't have to have a high IQ. You can go to the book of Proverbs and get wisdom about how to do life, how to do relationships, how to do marriage, how to do your money, how to do life with God. And God says, look, if you're ignorant, you're going to lose a lot of your potential and a lot of your destiny. What you don't know can destroy you. When you do a marriage seminar, they're not not there to get you into heaven. They're there to help people who are sincere. I'd like our marriage to be better. Now, that kind of a person you can help because they both want the marriage to be better, but somebody doesn't know something. And they're going to show you something you don't know you ought to be doing, that makes it better. And that's why the difference in seasons in your life, the difference between success and failure, poverty and, and, and uh, abundance is something you don't know. The Bible calls it wisdom. You look around, you look at people, and you, I just think, boy, that's not smart. Man, that is not smart, not smart, not smart. It's not about, it's, it's not about going to heaven. It's about being dumb or being smart. Dumb people go to heaven. Why not be a smart person? You you don't need to be smart to go to heaven. You need Jesus. But to live life on earth, you've got to be smart. And so, you don't have to have your GED. You've got God's Word. You've got the ability to learn from others who have done it, and you can learn what not to do. Fill your mind with knowledge. Make sure you gather understanding. Make sure you grow in wisdom. Ignorance is your enemy. Don't lose your hunger for new knowledge. Keep digging. Get ideas. Reading, listening to gain wisdom. What have other people done who are ahead of you? What do they know you don't know? I remember this is, oh gosh, years ago when Wayne Newton was the star in Vegas on the strip making the most money at that time, which was like $20 or something. And this is back, I don't know, in the 70s, and he had to file for bankruptcy because he got out of his gift which was music and entertainment, he got into real estate investments, and he lost his shirt. He didn't know what he was doing. And so, this went on and on. The lawyers on every side were just making this thing a mess. And he said he called Donald Trump, and Donald Trump said, get the lawyers out of it. Their job is to find a problem and keep the meter running. If you go directly to the creditor, they will work out some sort of a plan with you. And that's good advice. That was just business wisdom. It's not about who's a Christian, who's not a Christian, who's a good American, who's not. It's just smart. If you Most creditors, when you get in trouble and have a legitimate crisis, appreciate you came to them. They didn't have to go after you. You told them you've got a coming problem. You want to pay, but you can't. But here's what you can do. They will always work out something with you. Don't—but if you are with people who run away, then you're going to have a life of bad credit, high interest rates, and and frustration the rest of your life. So you can learn from people that have greater wisdom in areas. Read about them. Google them. Read a book. Try something, you know. Listen occasionally. You can do better in marriage. You can do better in relationships. You can do better in um, business. by. Hanging around people who are smart in business, and they said, I would never do that. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, I want to learn easy, not hard. I want to learn from people who have already done it. When we built this building, we went to a lot of different people who had big churches, and we said, hey, just tell us what you wouldn't do again. What were we asking for? Took them to a steak dinner. Uh, said to honor them for their time, and every one of them was so helpful to say, I'd never do this again, I'd never do this again, and I'd never do this again. And we didn't. Now, you get to make your own mistakes, but at least we didn't make their mistakes, right? So we minimized the problem. Proverbs 3, verse 13, happy is the man, or woman, who finds wisdom. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and happy is Rick when he finds out where did he just push his iPad. Ah, there you go. Happy is the man that finds wisdom and the man that gets understanding. There you go. Straight from God. Proverbs 18, 15, the intelligent man is always open to new ideas. He looks for them. Boy, that—it that, didn't say the good man, the Christian man. It just says the smart man is always open to new ideas. Is there a better way to do what you're doing? And if there is, for crying out loud, wouldn't you want it? If you're not, somebody else slap you upside the face and say, what's wrong with you? Get a life. You know, if you saw a bird walking down the highway, you'd say, you dumb bird, God gave you wings. You can fly. You don't have to walk, bump along. Get up and fly. And some of you are just walking along. God gave you wings. You ought to be flying. And you ought to listen to some wisdom. So the intelligent man is always open to new ideas. In fact, he looks for them. So get all you can, and it breaks that routine rut in your life. Knowledge is gathering information. Understanding is the interpreting of that information. And wisdom is the right application of that information. So you can go to school and get knowledge and not have any wisdom. Wisdom is how to use what you learn and make it pay off for you. Number six, the end in routine. The nature of the flesh being allowed to fulfill its desires that are contrary to God's Word. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, abstain from fleshly lusts that war against your soul. When Israel got stuck on their way to the Promised Land, going in circles, they started to murmur against God. They were complaining about the food, free food every day. They were accusing their leaders, and that old nature of the flesh hindered the dream of a Promised Land in their lifetime. Our flesh pulls on us like gravity. And I'm telling you, no matter how much you love Jesus, you have got a flesh nature. You have a carnal nature. Boy, I've got one too. And i got a spirit man. Now who is going to win the, the fight? The one that's the strongest. And boy, your flesh can scream at you. Try to go on a diet. Watch it scream at you. You'll see billboards. You'll smell. You'll never smell stuff before. You'll smell a neighbor four blocks away grilling outside. I mean, it's just like what you didn't notice before, your flesh notices now. Your flesh never wants to say, tell your wife you're sorry. No, 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 no. The flesh does not want to humble itself. It wants to exalt itself. My flesh wants to do this, it wants to do that. And you have to slap it into subjection and say, no, no, you're not going to. Do you want to? Of course you want to. My flesh always wants to do opposite of what the Spirit wants to do, always. Your flesh will never be in agreement with your spirit, and the Bible says they're at war with each other. And some of you have an incredible hunk of flesh, and you got a little dipstick, weepy little little spirit man because you don't feed him yeah. you know you think you can get by on once a month or easter and christmas church and once an, or when you're in trouble you can't grow a big strong spirit man boy how many times i'd rather do the wrong thing than the right thing because my flesh is always pulling on me oh well i bet Rick never has i bet you are so wrong it would scare you to know what everybody's flesh wants to do, but says, no, I'd like to, but no. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power. Or another place he says, all things are lawful, but uh, not expedient, not smart. So you gotta, you got to be careful. Got to be smart. I'm not trying. See, this is not a guilt trip. This is just about we all acknowledge. Man, I got a strong flesh nature. Put me on 281 in a traffic jam, and Darth Vader will leap out. I want to do everything that's not nice. I just do. I I want a 50 caliber machine gun on the roof. I want a. I, I want an armed vehicle, tank, half track. I want to be able to crush cars. Is that in you? I don't know if I want you to pray for me or not. Honey, it's in me, it's in you, it's in all of us. And I'm telling you the only victory here is to build up your spirit man. Build it up so you can say no. No. There's only two words that define your whole life, yes and no. Jesus said, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And what you say yes to or what you say no to will define your life. And I think all of us could say, well, there's a few things looking back in life I wish I'd said no. And a few places, you maybe you wish you'd said yes. And as you get smarter and you get older, you ought to get better at that so that you can say no a whole lot more than you say yes. That's all. But the will to want to do it, to do—even Paul says, the good that I would do, I don't do, and that which I, I sh- shouldn't do, I do, or whatever. Anyway, he's in conflict. I love it because it's just real. It's just real. You know, it's just the way life goes. So don't minimize that. Your flesh pulls on you like gravity, and it won't let you break camp in advance. It'll try to get you settled where you are, and you have to fight against it. In the 1930s, Norman Vincent Peale, the uh, clergyman and author of Positive Thinking, was making $6,000 a year when the Great Depression hit. His salary went down to $4,000 a year. He's walking around the park next to his home, and he's wondering, what am I going to do? He can't pay the bills. He's afraid to talk to his wife about it. Finally, according to his testimony, he walks into the kitchen and says to his wife, Ruth, Ruth, what are we going to do? I hate to burden you, but I don't know what to do. And the story goes that Ruth looked him right in the eye and says, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to start tithing. Norman Vincent Peale snapped back, tithe? We can't even pay our bills. Ruth said, Malachi 3.10 says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, Norman. Test me and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out to you. And in his testimony, Norman Vincent Peale says that was the beginning of a new day in his life. He started to tithe. He says a few weeks later, he received his first call to do a public speaking engagement, and the rest is history. See, his flesh said, I don't see how I can. I don't see how it'll work. That's the supernatural, but that's your flesh resisting that God can make 90 percent go further than 100 percent. That's always there. It's always there. That, that want generosity is something you fight for every day. There's always that stingy want-to-hold-on that is in all of us, in all of us. Here's the last one, the E in routine. Emptiness of spirit that's desert-like and lacks the resources to provide life and vitality. Now we're talking about why we get stuck and go in circles, why we can't seem to make progress. So E is the empty spirit that causes desert-like results in our life. In a desert, a real desert, very few things grow. You don't get fruit trees putting out a lot of fruit in a desert. So when you've got an empty spirit, when your spirit's dry, there won't be much good fruit coming out of your life. There won't be much life coming out of your life at all. And that's the way it is with an empty spirit empty spirit. You can have the best car made in the world, but if you don't have fuel in the tank, that fine car will be sitting on the side of the road. The price it costs, the accessories it may have will do you no good if there's no fuel in the tank. And that's the way it'll be with you with an empty spirit. You'll be parked on the side of the road. Your spirit holds the life Jesus promised to give. Our spirit is what causes us to have the motivation, the inspiration, and the life of God filling every day of our life. Jesus said in John 7, if any man's thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He that believes in Me, as the Scripture says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of life-giving water. That's what sustains a believer. But look at what we try to drink. The one woman had five husbands. She had been drinking from the well, and Jesus used it as an allegory. He said a metaphor. He says, look, you're still thirsty. You've had five husbands, and none of them satisfied you, and you're living with a guy that's not your husband now. If you'll come to me, I'll give you water. I'll quench your thirst. Some people try sex. Some people try drugs. Some people try alcohol. Other people try uh, money, power, but the, the, uh, the issue is you're trying Trying to scratch an itch that's unscratchable. Nothing will satisfy. If you get a little money, Solomon says, you got to have more. When you get a little more, you got to have more. When you do a little dope, you got to have a little more to get a buzz. Then you got to have a little more. And then you're going to end up in a brothel like Lamar Odom, who's a good guy who, who has, has got an empty soul, just like any of us, got an empty soul. And 75 grand and a bunch of hookers and, a, and, and cocaine didn't fix the itch and almost cost him his life. See, these are just good illustrations about, here's a poor guy, basically in life a good guy, but he doesn't know how to fix the itch. He's still thirsty. And it's like, will we ever catch on? You watch the celebrities, you watch the sports stars, and it's like, it never stops. Does anybody stop to say, you know, I don't think I'm going to get happy that way? God's not trying to, you know, rain on your party, He's just trying to say, look, look, I'll give you—I'll make you where you're not thirsty, where you, where you, you don't, I got to have that. I got to have that. And you'd say, no, I don't have to have that. It's cute, but I don't have to have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. talking to you guys now. Yeah. yeah, I noticed. It's cute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can remember 40 years ago, but mm-hmm. But no, no, I'm not—I'm not thirsty, so I don't need that. I'm just saying. I'm, it's, can, you, can church talk just real talk? I mean, or do you have to be very religious? Now, I've been down that road in the rock and roll business, and I watch guys, and they, you know, they, they, it's like nothing ever quenched the thirst. It never does. And I'm simply saying, God says, I'll fix that vacuum for you. I'll still give you a good life. You're still going to have fun. But if you think that's going to make you happy and complete, look at the bodies littered around in life and see that it's not true. And sometimes you get so busy doing the chores, you forget to drink from the spirit of life. And our spirits get dry and get empty, and you're parked on the side of the road of life. God says, don't be drunk with wine, where is excess, but get intoxicated with his Holy Spirit. So, with routine, we repeat religious behavior without any feeling. Doing it over and over. Stand up. Sit down. Pray three times to the north, three times to the south. Count my beads. Do 40 of these. Do 40 of these. And it's just a routine, and there's no life in it. There's no spontaneous life in it where God can touch your heart. It's all pre-programmed, and it can happen to any of us. Doing things over and over again and losing passion for it says you're in a rut. So, watch for signs of boredom, sleeping too much, eating too much, watching too much TV. Keep your relationship with God fresh and alive. Work at that. Let me close by asking a few questions and we're done. Number one, when last did you do something for somebody else that cost you something and from whom you could not get a return? In other words, you couldn't get a favor back from them. Number two, when last did you make an effort to develop a new friendship? Number three, when last did you open your home to friends? Number four, when last did you include someone new in your circle or your small group? Number five, when last did you make someone who looked uncomfortable feel at home? Number six, when last did you contact somebody you knew was hurting and hiding? If I was a friend of Lamar Odom, I would… If I, if I didn't live across the country, I'd be on the phone, I'd be on a text, I'd be there to encourage. I have another friend facing a court issue in another nation, and uh, we've been doing constant text, scriptures, encouragement. I'm with you, good or bad, whatever the results come out, I'm for you, I'm still with you. Just to encourage somebody, going out of your way to do it. You can do that. You don't run away. Number seven, when last did you negate your own insecurity to make somebody else feel secure? Number eight, when last did you do something about a need you identified without talking about it before or after doing it? You just did it. Nobody else knows you did it. And number nine, when last did you do something radical like tell somebody you know you love and appreciate them? Everybody loves to hear that, even if they act like they don't. They do like to hear it that you love and appreciate them. I've got friends sitting in here, and I had last night a bunch of of friends that are Saturday night. We've been friends for 25 years, and I always tell them how much I love them and appreciate them. I say some crazy things. I said, I've walked with you through valleys and mountaintops, and I don't care if you come over the border with a load of cocaine, I'm going to go like, what? I will be there for you. I will not forsake you. God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You don't excuse bad behavior, even from a friend, but you stand stand with a friend. A friend loves at all times. Are you people only love somebody when they're good for you, or do you love at all times? I don't want a friend that loves me on just my good days, because there's not that many of them. I need somebody to love me when I'm ugly, too. When last did you think about how life could change if you started doing any of the above on a regular basis? Number eleven, when last did you laugh out loud uncontrollably? And sometimes I try to make you, but it's just laughter does good like a medicine. Laughter. And last, number twelve, when last did you do something that in your lifestyle would be considered outrageous? Not illegal outrageous. That's how you get out of a rut, folks. And sometimes it's just one thing. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.